0: For more information about Redemption Church, and for additional resources, please visit RedemptionOKC.com. Good stuff. Y'all live today? Holiday week. Y'all got time off this week. You got to be ready to roll today, which is good. Uh, we are actually in Acts 21, and it's good that you have some extra energy maybe today because... We are going to go from Acts 21 through the end of Acts 26 today. It's like 156 verses. Any of you who've sat through my preaching before are probably nervous about now. Uh, I hope to be done sometime Tuesday before the fireworks start. So uh, hope you ate up this morning. Uh, kidding, kidding. We're gonna we are going to do a quick jaunt through this. This is a, one of those sections in Acts where there's a lot of things that are competitive. There's a lot of things that are showing up. Anything, anything here like I'm popping in and out. We good? All right, I'm gonna press on. Uh, But hey, we're gonna be talking about power today, not electrical power, but different kind of power. Uh, Our world often associates power with things like authority, strength, control, influence celebrity and those are the the kind of recognition and importance and things that we think about when we think about power and if we're all honest we would probably like a little more power in our lives in some area or another right I mean let's be honest we're all control freaks somewhere maybe not in every area but in some area we're all control freaks and maybe you would like a little bit more power when your toddlers are trying to go to sleep Or trying not to go to sleep and you wish there was some kind of magical power that you could just sprinkle some dust on them and they'd all go to sleep without fighting back. You probably wish that uh, sometimes that there is a power of wealth that would make you go on vacation and not have to use your credit card. Come back with debt to pay off after your summer vacation. You probably wish there was power to uh, make your boss recognize how wonderful an employee you are and give you a raise. Like There's all kinds of ways we want power And so we tend to lean into those things and we see that power can be used for good. We probably would like to have power to fix all the injustices in our world at times, wouldn't we? And yet in the midst of all the good of power, we also see that sometimes power can be used for evil. In fact, uh, this earthly kind of power oftentimes creates problems in our world, even, even in us. Uh, about 20 years ago, there's a company named Enron. Chase, that was a, I know it was a long time ago. You are probably playing T-ball or something then. But this is a, an oil company, an energy company. Uh, Chase sometimes gets up here and gets a little power to his head and likes to remind me that I'm old. So sometimes I got to turn it on him and remind him that he's he's a young buck and needs to be informed of new things. But uh, Enron was an oil company and was considered by many to be a model company. In fact, their CEO used to speak on ethics at corporate conferences And his typical quote was, The responsibility of our board, a responsibility which I expect them to fulfill, is to ensure legal and ethical conduct by the company and everyone in the company. It's the most important thing we expect from members. Uh, They rolled out this ethics campaign called RICE. They put RICE on everything so that every employee remembered how important RICE was. And RICE stood for uh, respect, integrity, community, excellence it was on t-shirts coffee mugs banners everything if you work in any corporation you've seen this kind of thing before right like we've all seen this thing these things happen now energy was a was a energy company was ranked at the time as america's fifth largest company by fortune magazine it collapsed after a massive accounting fraud was revealed and filed bankruptcy in 2001 at the time was the largest bankruptcy in american history estimated losses of $74 billion. Um, Enron was later revealed to be involved in all kinds of shady dealings, uh, which involved involved, uh, or led to multiple convictions and lawsuits. There was even a Broadway play that was created about Enron. And even that closed down in 12 weeks because they couldn't even sell tickets to the play making fun of themselves. Uh, This thing was a complete failure. In fact, Arthur Anderson was the accounting firm that was contracted to, uh, to ensure an audit the 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 company of Enron and it found out that they they actually had to disclose that their employees had destroyed company documents in an effort to mask and hide the corruption that was taking place there a pretty remarkable thing isn't it you understand why there's a famous saying that says power corrupts and absolute power corrupts completely completely or absolutely and we know that saying because it seems to be true in many circles. And it's not hard to see why we've become so cynical about institutions, about corporations, about political parties, even about churches in our world. Because so often, our institutions have used power for their own gain. And yes, in fact, churches too often drift away from the calling of Jesus' cross. And we begin to look a lot like the world in terms of our seeking of glory and power and control over other people. And now when the church does this, and when we're indistinguishable from the world around us, it actually causes double harm. It causes harm that we're not caring for those around us, but also does harm to the name of Christ, because we don't look like him. And it creates pain for many of those that have trusted in him. But here's the question I have for us today. What if Jesus actually said that everything we believed about power was wrong? What if he actually turned everything on his head? What if the way that the son of God came into this world and lived amongst us actually flipped and inverted our understanding of worldly power and all that it meant so that the way of true power looked like weakness in the eyes of the world? This is what I want us to, to lean in on today. We're going, to look at, uh, the chapter, uh, we're going to look at Acts chapter 21, and we're going to see, as we look kind of through this broad spectrum of what happens in Paul's life and the unfolding of his personal journey, uh, we're going to see how Paul reflected Christ in the way in which he walked in the way of Jesus, even in a world that rejected him. So Acts 21, I'm going to start just in verse 30. This goes back to what we looked at a little bit last week. But Paul is uh, in the temple and he's gone to Jerusalem. He's gone back home to uh, the, the kind of home base of Christianity uh, there in Jerusalem. But he's gone to the Jewish temple and, and he's caused a bit of a stir. in the midst of that stir, it says, uh, it says when, uh, Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. And they seized Paul and they dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut and they were seeking to kill him. And word came to the tribune of the cohort that all of Jerusalem was in confusion and the the leader the Roman leader took uh, the soldiers and the centurions and ran down to them and when they had seen the tribune and the soldiers they stopped them from beating Paul they arrested him and ordered him to be bound in chains and he inquired who he was and what he had done do you understand what's happened here Paul's gone in the temple and because paul is there because he's preaching a new message of grace that is for all not just for the jews and while he's saying that god has come and that the gentiles can also know uh, can also know god through christ it's beginning to, to ruffle some feathers and some of the people that have been angry at paul before show up and begin to stir the pot it says the whole city was in confusion and because the whole city was in confusion they began to uh to seek to kill paul now in this uh, the the roman authorities begin to see chaos and the roman authorities job was just don't let the city go crazy so they step in and they're not even sure what's happening there they don't understand there's messages flying around but what they know is i need to shut this down and bring some peace so they bring peace to this situation Now, question for you if you were paul how would you feel about this moment you're going to worship because of the message of what God has revealed to you to be true, people are now trying to kill you, take your life, and they're beating you within an inch of your life. Uh, Paul was, was beaten in mob violence because of his faith. And in that, he had to be rescued from professional soldiers that stepped in. Now, Paul is going to go on, and he's going to, um, he, he's going to, to share the gospel with this group of people. Now, here's what's interesting in this story. In Acts 21 uh, this scene is going to be repeated again and again. Again and again, we're going to see this kind of transition of Paul stepping up to preach and people coming in to try to take his life, and Paul stepping back up to preach and people stepping in to take his life. And what we need to understand about the book of Acts is this is actually a sequel. Let we go there? All right. We good? Okay, there we go. Uh, so what we need to know about the book of Acts is, you realize, and maybe you remember this if you've been here for our series, but the book of Acts is actually a sequel. The, the author, Luke, wrote the Gospel Luke, and then he, the, then he wrote the book of Acts as kind of uh, book number two, and they're meant to kind of flow all together as one big story. Now, both were written by the same man, Luke what Luke does, it's interesting, in the Gospel Luke, uh, you see at the end of his Gospel, as he's writing that book about Jesus and about his life, you get to Luke uh, chapters 19 to 23, and all of the story shifts, and it focuses entirely on Jesus' arrest, on Jesus' beatings, on Jesus' trials, and then on Jesus' death. Now here, you get to the end of Acts. What's, what is it that Luke, the same author, does? He takes about four chapters, and he tells the story of Paul. He tells the story of Paul's arrest, Paul's beatings, Paul's trials, and Paul's suffering. And so what we're meant to see, Luke is not doing this just because of uh, kind of the the basic storyline. Luke's doing this intentionally because he wants us to catch a point. That somehow what happens to Jesus also happens to Paul. And what he's been meaning for us to see is that somehow what the experience of life that Jesus has is meant to overflow to us to you and to me as well we're all to experience this kind of life now it's interesting when you think about the comparisons between paul and jesus Uh, paul came to jerusalem knowing he would suffer jesus came to jerusalem knowing he would die paul was accused of being a a gentile into the jewish temple jesus was accused of, of eating with sinners and tax collectors paul went to the temple and was accused of being against the jewish law and against the place of the temple Jesus was accused of saying he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Paul was beaten within an inch of his life. Jesus was beaten to the point of exhaustion. Paul was apprehended by Jews and tried by Romans. So was Jesus. And then you see that Paul also faced a crowd here that's crying, away with him, away with him. What was the, that the crowds cried to Jesus before his crucifixion? Away with him, away with him. They were crying the same thing. Luke's writing this entire sequence intentionally to help us see that somehow our lives are going to reflect the life of Christ in the way in which we have to endure suffering. In fact, it's why Jesus in Matthew 18 says this. He told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Isn't that interesting that Jesus correlates the two? He says, as I'm going to go and lay down my life on a cross, you too are to deny yourself and to take up your own cross and to lay down your life in a similar fashion. Here's the thing. Jesus was God's son. Jesus was beloved of God. Jesus was was unified and connected with God in a way that there was never any separation uh, from God the Father. And yet, it says that God so loved the world that he sent his only son that he might die for us. Isn't that remarkable? Now, if Jesus himself was so beloved, if he was a son, if he himself was righteous, if he was sent as Lord and king over all, and yet he went to the cross as a sacrificial lamb, it it ought to instruct us something about God and something about the world in which we live and also something about what it means for us to be followers of this one named Jesus Jesus' friends flipped the entire script on what it means to live the blessed life. Uh, To be blessed of God did not mean comfort and security and freedom. It meant sacrifice and service. That's why Jesus said things like, it's better to give than to receive. You ever try to explain that to a second grader? It just doesn't go well, does it? It's like, no, I want Christmas. Like, I'm, I'm ready for more. I want you to bring me some good stuff. Uh, and, and so you try to explain this story, but these were not the way that people were taught to think in that world about kings. Kings were tyrants that taxed people because they wanted to take from people. Jesus showed up and said, I'm going to give my all in order to save you. This is revolutionary stuff. And what Jesus is making clear to all of us is that there's just, there's two distinctive ways of living in the world. There's the way of the cross and there's the way of glory. Now, uh, this is what we're going to unpack as we walk through the service. And I want to step back and just kind of lay out this kind of big picture idea of the way of the cross and the way of glory and the, tr- the, the difference between the two ways. Uh, theologian Carl Truman explains it this way. He says, God achieves his intended purposes by doing the exact opposite of that which humans might expect. The supreme example of this is the cross itself. God triumphs over sin and evil by allowing sin and evil to triumph apparently over him. His real strength is demonstrated through apparent weakness. Isn't that fascinating? That when God sent his son, the most powerful thing he did was actually to display his weakness and lay down his life voluntarily as a sacrificial lamb. Now, that's the opposite of the way of glory. In simple terms, the way of glory uh, really just means that, uh, that, that we assume that the way the world works is the way that God works. And so we think if the world, if, if when we look at, the, at worldly power, we just think, well, if God is infinite, then he's going to have worldly power to an infinite degree. And so we take what we think of as the most powerful thing on earth and we just attribute that to God and say, I look at God as the most powerful one that, that's going to allow me to do everything I want to do in the sense of worldly power. And so that worldly power takes on a personal touch. You understand that, that your version of glory maybe anything that you could turn into an idol it may be money it could be influence respect sex admiration whatever it is that you look up that you exalt that you look at as this is the most powerful wonderful thing on earth if we remake god in our own image we take that and we push that upon god and say well then god must be like that as well and so we attribute to god something that is really coming from us um uh, Carl Truman goes on to say, The way of glory therefore is for those who who live in light of what they expect God to be like, and surprise, surprise, they make God look something like themselves. Those who walk in the way of glory inevitably use power to advance their own lives. They suppose that they can arrive at an understanding of divine power by magnifying to an infinite degree the most powerful thing with which they can think. Do you see the difference between the cross, the way of the cross and the way of glory? So the way of glory says I am at the center and God must be like me. And so therefore power must be an infinite degree of the thing that I desire the most. But the way of the cross see things entirely different. The way of the cross says we are to see things in light of who God has revealed himself to be in the person of Jesus and in Jesus' sacrifice for us upon a cross. So divine power is revealed through the weakness of the cross. And isn't it interesting that when Jesus came, the disciples all thought he was going to come in glory, didn't they? It's why the disciples said things like, Jesus, when you come in your kingdom, can I sit at your right hand and your left hand? Can we, can we get the best seats at the table when you usher in the glory of all your kingdom? And I'm willing to follow you as long as you bring in glory. And I get to kind of bask in your glory. And then Jesus says, I'm actually going to go to a cross and lay down my life. And what do the disciples respond to that? I don't know if I want, I don't know if I want any of that. I'm not sure I want the cross, I just, I want the glory. And it's interesting that these are the two ways that you begin to see. So let's look at Paul's example and what it looks like to walk in the way of the cross rather than the way of glory. So back in Acts 21, uh, Paul is under attack. And um, Paul has done nothing wrong. He's actually going to be proven innocent uh, when it gets to the end of this. But Paul's under attack from fear of his very life. Um, What happens when you are under duress or under attack? Uh, The typical response is something we call fight or flight. That if you're a strong person, you bow up and you're like, all right, I'm going to fight for this. If you're someone who maybe doesn't have the strength, then you flight, you run and say, okay, I'm going to flee from this moment. And these are the powerful, deep, instinctive reactions that we all have to personal attack. Now, in this story, it's not been five minutes since Paul was literally beaten to within an inch of his life. And yet, you get to the story, and Paul is here in great danger. And you see what Paul says in, at, at the end of chapter 21. He says in verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the, the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian? He accuses him of being someone who's caused a political unrest. And Paul goes on, and he says, no, I'm a Jew. Um, from Tarsus of Cilicia, a city of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And the man gave him a chance to speak to the people. And Paul uh, begins, and he says, with great hush, he addressed them in Hebrew language, saying, brothers and fathers, hear the defense I now make before you. And Paul is going to begin to share the gospel. Let me ask you, if someone's trying to take your life, is your first instinct to try to save them? This was Paul's instinct. Uh, Paul's instinct in the midst of this moment was not to lash back at them, but he asked permission to speak to them. He begins to preach the gospel. Now, how could he desire to help these people when they were attacking him as an enemy? There's only one reason. It's faith in Christ. Faith in Christ that that was so deep in his heart that the compassion of Christ for these people overcame his natural instinctual emotions of, of, of anger and of fear and helped him to act in in compassion and love towards the people around him. Friends, do you believe that your faith in Christ can overcome the natural instincts of your life and cause you to want to act in a way that seems unnatural? See, Paul also knew that this was likely the last time he would ever get to speak in Jerusalem, the last chance he would ever be able to share the gospel with these people, the last chance he would have to extend the grace that he received from Christ to someone in the city. And so Paul steps in, to the gap in that moment, instead of lashing out in, in anger or running in fear, he simply reaches out with the grace of God in a beautiful picture that's very, very much Christ-like. Friends, that's remarkable courage and love and action, isn't it? Don't you want more of that in our world? Uh, it's interesting that the way the cross often looks like laying down one's rights in order to uh, to honor and serve a higher cause. So I want us to look at one other important verse that's going to shed some light on this. Let's skip over to Acts 23. And um, What happens to Paul here is he goes ahead and shares the gospel. And do you think the people responded well? No, they respond with basically the same thing. Away with him. He doesn't, he doesn't deserve to walk the face of the earth, uh, which seems like somewhat of a harsh statement uh, if I'm on the receiving end of that statement. But that's what they say to Paul. It says, when the dissension became violent, this is uh, Acts 23.10. When the, the very next day, when the exemption became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn in pieces, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him back into the barracks for his own safety. So Paul is attacked a second time and has to be rescued by professional soldiers and put in prison for his own safety again. Now, it's interesting, the following night, look at verse 11. The following night, the Lord Jesus stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Isn't that pretty remarkable? Uh, Look at me at verse 12, what happens the very next thing. Now, after Jesus appeared to him that night, it says, when it was day, so the next morning, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves with an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 of them who made this conspiracy. That's a serious grudge. I mean, I there's times I get frustrated at people, but I'm not going to say I'm not going to eat or drink till I get to kill the guy. But there's 40 people that they commit, and say, we are going to, we are not going to eat or drink until we take this man's life. There's a conspiracy. It's interesting when you think about Jesus' appearance. Verse 10, they're trying to kill Paul. Verse 12, they're trying to kill Paul. Verse 11, the Lord Jesus stood by him. Isn't that a remarkable isn't that a beautiful picture of Christ and what he says? And what's Jesus encouraging him with? Take courage. What's the message of encouragement that he gives him? You're not done yet. You get to do this again in a bigger city. Like, there, it feels a little bit 2 edged, doesn't it? I mean, let's be honest. Like, what I want Jesus to say is take courage. I'm about to wipe these dudes out, and you're going to be free, and you got nothing to worry about anymore. But that's not what Jesus said. He doesn't say, I'm going to get you to a place of ease and comfort where you'll no longer be attacked. He does not say, I'm going to bring you to safety where no harm or danger or pain will ever enter your life again. Jesus does not say, I'm going to make you a successful, respected person in the eyes of all these people. Those are not the promises that Jesus gives. Jesus says, take courage. You're not going to die here today. But you're still going to preach for me later on. There's two aspects, I think, of this encouragement. But I think what's important is what it means to Paul. See, the deepest desire of Paul's heart would be that he would honor Christ and tell others about him. He wanted Jesus to be proclaimed more than he wanted his own comfort. And that shaped Paul's heart. So there's two things you see. One thing uh, Jesus is saying is, Paul, I'm going to see you all the way safely to Rome. Meaning, you don't have to be worried right now that you're not about to die. Like, you've at least got a little while left because I've got to get you all the way to Rome because I promise you, you're going to preach there too. But secondly means i'm going to use this injustice and difficulty to carry out my plans to further the gospel message in the world somehow i'm going to take the evil that's transpiring here and i'm going to use it to further the good that you are called to give in the midst of the world and this encouragement came at an important time for paul right between two attempts attempts on his life Uh, friends how does the lord encourage you personally when you're facing hard times See, what I know is none of us have likely endured anything like what Paul did. It's, it's highly unlikely we, any of us have suffered under mob mentality and been beaten to within an inch of our life and rescued by soldiers. It's highly unlikely that we're fearful that we're going to die for our faith. And yet we face hardship all the time. And you recognize that God steps in and, and Jesus was standing right by, right by Paul's side in the midst of his struggle. And, and I think we need to know that Jesus also stands by our side as we're in the midst of struggles. And, and Jesus gives Paul a promise and Jesus gives us promises in his word that we are meant to hold on to. That we're meant to look for hope in the midst of our struggles as well. And there's two things I think that we need to understand and we are not going to thrive in any kind of sustainable, healthy, grounded way until we settle these two things in our hearts. The first is that God does not exist for your glory on earth, but you exist for God's glory. That's part of what Paul understood. He understood that my life uh, belongs to Christ, and if uh, if I am to live, I live in Christ, and if I die, then I get to go be with Him, and that's gain. And so I live ultimately for the glory of God. Secondly, that God's promises point to something better for you that extends beyond this life to future glory that awaits you understand that this life is not all there is see it's easy for us if we get confused the way of the cross and the way of glory to think i've got a few short years to grab all the glory and the gusto that i can and i need to leverage everything in my life to get all i can right now and yet what the promise of god says there's more that awaits us beyond this life and so Paul is going to face uh, this difficulty, and he's going to move forward. And now here's what's, what's interesting. Does God fulfill his promise to Paul? In fact, it's, it's fascinating. If you look in uh, these chapters 21 to 26, Paul's actually in prison for more than two years. Can you imagine what that would be like to be Paul and have to have your entire life interrupted for two years? I get annoyed if the internet goes down for an hour. Paul, Paul is facing two years of his life being completely disrupted, having to live in prison and being dragged from one place to another to another for multiple years. In fact, uh, what we see is that four different times in, uh, in, in these chapters, Paul, is, is risk, his life is at, at risk, and he's almost about to die. So four different times, Paul's right on the edge of death, and yet God rescues him and delivers him from harm. And all the while, the gospel continues to spread. Even though four times he almost died, five times Paul gets to preach. And each time in a bigger city and in a new place, he gets to present the gospel and reach out with the grace to all those that are around. And the gospel is spreading all the way to Rome. Does God keep his promises? Friends, do you remember the beginning of this book? What is the the theme verse of the book of Acts? We've talked about it all throughout this series. Acts 1-8, right? Any of you know it? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Where does Paul's first beating take place in this story? He's in Jerusalem, and he begins to move out. Where's Jesus say you're gonna? It's going to end. It's going to end in Rome. Is God fulfilling His promise? He absolutely is. He's carrying his mission. Never doubt God's promises. Uh, Luke shows us Jesus' encouragement in verse 11 purposefully before, before verse 12. Because I think it's important for us to understand. You understand that the promises of God don't mean that life's always going to be easy. The promise of God don't mean that everything's just going to get whooshed up into, into glory overnight. But that it's going to continue to be a stretch for us. And Paul, God, uh, Jesus shows up and reassures Paul before he enters the fray again. One commentator, F.F. F. Bruce, said it this way, this assurance meant much to Paul during the delays and anxieties of the next two years and goes far to account for the calm and dignified bearing which seemed to mark him out as a master of events rather than the victim. Now I love this quote because of what it says about Paul. See, Paul, uh, if you read the rest of this chapter, and I'd encourage you to go back and just read 21 to 26 this week sometime, but if you read, Paul never seems frantic. Paul never seems panicked. Paul always seems like he's in a place of calm, and he's a place of confidence because of what God is doing, and that's a supernatural work that that Jesus is working in him because he's trusting the promises of Christ. And so even though his life is under attack, even though his life has been interrupted, even though he's imprisoned and he has no control over the circumstances of his life, he himself is in a personal place of confidence and boldness as he goes to preach the gospel. Now to us, if you were going through what Paul did, how do you think you'd be feeling? I imagine he's feeling like his life's spinning out of control. I imagine he's waking up every day going, all right, Jesus, what's next? Imagine his head's on a swivel, and he's like, like, is, the, you know, is there a semi-truck coming my way? And every day he's coming up expecting more, more hardship to come his way. Do you, ever, do you ever feel that way? I mean, we joke in our whole world like bad things happen in threes. Because we just anticipate if something bad happens, there's more that's coming our way. Imagine if you're Paul. Uh, you've continually been beaten. You've continually been imprisoned, prison. You've continually been pushed off. You've not been able to do the things that you feel called and desire to do in your life may feel like you're a victim of your circumstances. But you notice what Bruce said. Paul approaches this as though he's the master of the events, not the victim of the events. Friends, I think this is an important thing for us to think about. Paul's faith gave him a different perspective on the things that he was going through. And um, it's similar to what Jesus said. When Jesus went to the cross, do you remember what, what Jesus said to those that were, uh, that were taunting him? He says, if if my father had not allowed you to have power, you would have no power at all. Meaning my confidence is completely at rest in the Lord and in his care. And I know what he's going to do. Friends, this is the way of the cross. It frees us to serve with freedom and confidence rather than fight or flight mentality. It frees us to trust God even when things are hard. Uh, John Newton, the great hymn writer writes this. He says, everything is necessary that God sends. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Friends, how strong is your confidence in God? How strong is your faith and your belief and his love for you and his goodness of you? See, Paul knew that I was one who ran away from God and God sought me and God took hold of me and turned me around and God redeemed me and rescued me. And because of that, I'm gonna trust him with all of my life. And so he continues to trust the Lord, even though things went tough, uh, went, went rough in his life. Let's jump to Acts 25. We're gonna go to the last of Paul's speeches In 25 verse 23, we're going to see uh, kind of where this story picks up um, at at the end of this section of Paul's life. It says, And so on the next day, uh, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. And so they entered the audience hall with military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And then, uh, then they came at the command of Festus, and Paul was brought in. You get this interesting story. So, Paul has been imprisoned. He's given his speech and shared his testimony. He's imprisoned again, shares his testimony, beaten and imprisoned again, shares his testimony. He keeps moving up. He eventually gets to go all the way to meet with the, the, the head of the Roman government at that time. And he's meeting with another royal couple. In fact, it's, a, it's an incredible opportunity for gospel mission. Now, think about this. When you think about this, it says that this was a, and this is in ancient times. This was a ceremony of great pomp. All the business leaders of the city were there. All the political leaders of the city were there. All royalty and all the religious leaders, everyone that was anyone in that city showed up. And Christianity at that point had been kind of this marginal movement. But now all of a sudden, Paul is going to have a chance to step up and to speak in front of the leaders of the known world. And in the midst of that Uh, This is an incredibly dramatic opportunity. In fact, one guy says, and and this is an important thing, this is a showdown in in some ways of the way of the cross and the way of glory. We're going to see this confrontation that takes place. Uh, One guy said it this way. Here we see a face-to-face confrontation with leaders of two completely opposed spiritual kingdoms. The Herod, so the, the couple he's meeting is Herod Agrippa II and his wife Bernice. It says the Herods were a powerful royal family who, though professing biblical faith, had lived lives of violence and corruption for generations, mimicking the ways of the ruling classes of the world. Herod the Great had slaughtered many in an effort to kill Jesus. His son, Herod Antipas, had executed John the Baptist. His grandson, Herod Agrippa I, had killed the Apostle James. Now Paul has the opportunity to clearly present the gospel which this family had been opposing for generations. The confrontation could not have been more dramatic. Uh, do you feel the tension that's kind of built up in this scene and as they get there? This lineage of royalty of the Herods that had operated by the way of glory and they built their kingdom through violence and through, uh, through self-seeking and self-centered lifestyles. They built this great power of kingdom in a worldly sense. And now Paul is coming and Paul's in chains If you're there and you're watching as a spectator, who looks like they have power in that room? Well, the king, the leaders, those of wealth. Who's the one that looks like the victim? The one that's in chains, that's in prison. Who's the one that looks like he's weak? Uh, The one who's a servant, the one who's enslaved underneath their care and has no control over his own life. The one who has been tossed around for two years by anyone that wanted to hold him hostage. Now it's interesting. Paul gets a chance to speak and he's going to uh, step up and begin to share his personal testimony. Here's what Paul says in verses four to five. He says, look, I tried all the religious things. I was just like the religious leaders of Jerusalem. I did all the right things and it wasn't enough. Verse 9, he says, I also rejected, treated, rejected Jesus. When Jesus first came on the scene, I said, there's no way that truly is the Messiah because Jesus' Messiah is supposed to be great, not weak. Jesus' Messiah is supposed to reign, not suffer. Jesus' Messiah is supposed to rescue us from Rome, not, not, uh, not be a, 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 someone who's punished by Rome and who lays down his life and dies. And so I, too, attacked Jesus and all those who preached in his name. Verse 13 says, but God intervened and changed my life. I want to pick up the story of Paul's speech here in verse 13. Paul says this to Agrippa and to Bernice and all those that were watching. He says, at midday, O king, I saw on the way to Damascus a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness in the things which you have seen of me and to those in whom I will appear to you, delivering, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, so that you might open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul then continues. "He says, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not obedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared to those in Damascus, then to Jerusalem, then throughout all the region of Judea, and to all the Gentiles, that, those, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. It was for this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day... I have had help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Do you catch the drift of Paul's testimony and the power of the message that he's offering? Do you see the way the cross overturns and turns everything upside down? Uh, there's so much that I'd love to just walk through and unpack here. But for the sake of time, think, I just want you to think about how the cross and the gospel turns everything upside down once, God's open, once God opens a person's eyes to see. Because Paul was fighting against Christ, now he's preaching Christ. He said he's preaching to those who are under darkness and under the power of Satan. But now they've turned to belong to light and belong to God. They were guilty, outcasts, and now they have forgiveness of sins through no righteousness of their own. The king who came to their rescue actually acts as a servant. The Savior suffers and dies in what looks like failure and defeat. Death seemed to win, and then resurrection comes. And it's interesting that he calls Jesus the firstborn of the dead, meaning that that resurrection is not just Jesus' resurrection, but actually comes for all of us, that we can experience resurrection as well, even though we've not earned it or deserved it. How do they respond? Verse 25. I think this is a hilarious response. As Paul was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Uh, Festus doesn't understand the gospel, does he? Do you see the miracle of what's happening? See, the gospel and the way of the cross literally flip the entire world upside down. They literally take all of our understanding of power and they turn it on its head and they turn everything inside out. And so Festus, this man who's sought power, who's run after power, and Felix, this king who's been a man of a family lineage that sought power their entire life are now suffering and they're, they're, or now they're, they're seeing this and they can't understand, they can't comprehend, they can't wrap their minds around what Jesus or what Paul is saying about Christ. Friends, it's been 25 years since Christ died. And Paul is going to respond and says, Look, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe." And the boldness of Paul to speak to the king that holds his life in his hand. And he's preaching the gospel and desiring for Agrippa to come to Christ. And he says, I know that you can believe and that you can put your faith in these things as well. Friends, maybe you're here today and you're like Agrippa. Maybe you need to know the salvation that Christ came to bring us. And you need to know the way of the cross. Um, might you then believe as well. Verse, 30, uh, or verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for the chains. Friends, this is the way of the cross. But Paul says, look, I'm in chains, but I'm really the one that's free here. And all of you that look like you're in a place of glory are actually in chains. And he turns everything upside down. Uh, friends, we need to be those who walk in the way across. For the sake of time, I'm going to shut her down. Um, friends, do you understand what, what the gospel says to us? Is that though we have not earned glory for ourselves, God gives us glory through his son. Though we have not earned righteousness for ourselves, God gives us righteousness that's alien to us, but comes bestowed upon us because of Christ. That though we have not performed in a religious or righteous way in order to earn forgiveness, that he gives us forgiveness of sins that's unearned and completely free by his grace. And because of that, we are no longer in chains, but that we are set free. Set free to walk with him, to walk in him, but also to serve in the name of Christ as he served to love in the name of Christ as he loved us first. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would make us like Christ. That we might look to the way of the cross rather than the way of glory. That we might lay down our lives as those who deny ourselves and take up the cross of Christ. That we might wash one another's feet. That we might serve those who are unlovely as Christ served us when we were unlovely. that we might trust that you bring beauty out of brokenness. And then we might rest in your goodness, Father, all our days until, until you take us home and bring us to a place of glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.